All right, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. This year we began a series through the book of Acts, and we just are now cracking Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, "Uh, they're filled with new wine. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, would you uh, bless us today? We read your word. We preach your word. We study your word because we know that it is your revelation to us. So teach us today. Enlighten our minds change our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, I'm always, uh, not these days so much because he's he's kind of, he's older now, but I was kind of suspicious of my dad for a long time if he would give me something uh, and I didn't know what it was. I I would be suspicious when he would give me something if I didn't know what it was because, you know, uh, when I was a little kid, he would like, he would give me what looked like a lemon head or a hard candy. I'd be like, oh, thanks. And it would be, uh, softener salt for the, uh, the water softener. I'd be like, oh, man. Or I'd get like a little brick of chocolate. I'd be like, nice. And it was X-Lax. Uh, because he's funny that way, right? My dad, he's like, yeah, it's pretty good, right? Yeah. Well, get comfortable in the bathroom. You're going to be there a while. So like, but my dad would be like, here, take it. And I'd be like, I don't know what it is. I'd be suspicious, right? Because I got burned in a playful way. I would always take it anyways. I would just kind of know something's going to happen. So I would be a little suspicious if my dad would try to give me something. Uh, usually had a look on his face. And we all know what that's like, right? To feel a sense of suspicion because of things that have happened to us in the past. And churches and denominations oftentimes become suspicious of certain things, of certain activities or of certain words even because of how they may have been burned in the past. Christians, churches, denomination, denominations. There are, there are some Christians and churches who are very suspicious when they go to a church and there's what we call a membership covenant, right? Membership covenant is just a general agreement that churches and Baptists in particular have used from our earliest days. And, uh, and it says, hey, listen, I promise as a member of this church not to not to gossip about 
one another. I promise to be a, an active part of, of our church life. I'm going to use my gifts, you know, that kind of stuff, right? And sometimes they're really specific, not so healthy. But sometimes the healthy ones are, are pretty general, basic biblical exhortations where you are saying, as a member, I'm, I'm committing to this body. But some people have been in churches where membership covenants were used to really oppress and control people. And so then when they see a membership covenant, they're like, ooh, I don't know. Uh, I don't like membership covenants. And sometimes it goes beyond that so that their suspicion actually sabotages their ability to function. In fact, when uh, we were, I was joining a, a church planting network and called X29, right? And uh, so at that meeting, this is the, it was this long assessment process, they found out that uh, we were a congregational church, meaning that the church body actually votes on things like leadership or membership. And so that means the congregation uh, has to approve who's going to serve as pastors. It means that the congregation can decide Apart from the elders, we want to remove all the elders. They can do that sort of a thing. And so the leadership of this particular gathering of Acts 29 pastors, uh, they were asking some questions about this. And one in particular was like, this is, that he was on high alert. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You mean that you can be fired from your church if three quarters of the membership want you gone? And I was like, yeah, and I would kind of want to be. I mean, I'd, I'd rather not be there. Three quarters of them don't want me there. It's kind of, I don't know why, that's controversial. But he just couldn't get past it. He goes, this is unhealthy. Congregationalism is bad. And the reason he was so suspicious of congregationalism is because he read about or had a bad experience with a congregational church. So his suspicion wound up sabotaging a functional ecclesiology. By the way, we learned in that very network when there isn't congregational care, input, uh, when there isn't congregationalism, when the church as a body can actually vote on and determine who will lead and serve, when there isn't that, all kinds of other problems arise. Anyway, suspicion can actually sabotage our faith because when we are suspicious about something, maybe it's a legit suspicion, uh, maybe we just have questions, but sometimes it can lead us to inactivity or even unbelief. What we need to do is we need to make sure that when we are suspicious, and I'm not, there's no problem with having that feeling of suspicion, but when you are suspicious, it's important to check your suspicion with Scripture and be open to what Scripture says. I'm saying all of this because we're about to talk about the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues at a Baptist church. And Baptists have a bit of a history of being suspicious when it comes to things like the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. Uh, and, it, and it's not because we don't have developed theological understanding of these issues. Sometimes it's that. It's, it's oftentimes because we've just seen an abuse of doctrines or a misuse of practices that have been so dangerous, we've pulled back and our suspicion has begun to sabotage our faith or our practice. So today, we're going to begin to ease into the, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit again and the spiritual gifts, and we'll be talking a bit about speaking in tongues, at least here in Acts chapter 2. But the takeaway for all of this is, I think, the key that will preserve us from our suspicion ultimately sabotaging our faith. And the principle is this, the gift of the Holy Spirit is God giving himself to the church. Now, that may not sound like a profound statement. It may not sound like that big of a deal. It may sound pretty basic, but let me assure you, much of our problem 
as Baptists, right, as, as Christians who aren't a part of a, of a charismatic movement or, or many of the problems that we have is, as people who have maybe neglected the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, much of this is because we have neglected this gift. We do not see its real significance. The gift of the Holy Spirit is actually God giving himself to the church, so there can be no greater gift, right? So, here we are, we're in Acts chapter two, and just for a brief recap, Jesus was crucified. He died as a substitute for sinners. He rose from the dead, and then after his resurrection, he began appearing to the disciples, instructing them, giving them instructions, and one of the last things he told them was, I want you to go, gather together, wait in that upper room, and wait until the Holy Spirit that has been promised descends, fills you, because that's when you will then have power to do all the things I've called you to do. So they have been waiting for the Spirit, and today is the day when God delivers on this promise. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. We know where they were. They were in the upper room. What's the day of Pentecost, right? A lot of us, we hear Pentecost, and we think immediately, Pentecostal, no thanks, right? Or maybe you think, Pentecostal, let's go. But before we even get to that, like, you have to understand that Pentecost was an Old Testament uh, festival, it was a harvest, harvest festival, right? It was, uh, it, was, it was an opportunity for the people of Israel to make an offering to the Lord. It was the harvest, the wheat harvest had come in. And, you know, Pentecost actually means 50th because this was celebrated, this festival would, would fall on the 50th day after Passover. So that's when this is happening. Right? This, this event, this, this Holy Spirit falling upon the people of God in a new way and for uh, these new purposes of the church spreading across the globe. But just also keep this in mind that Pentecost, while it was a harvest festival in the intertestamental period, that is between the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and before Christ's birth, during that time, that, those hundreds of years, uh, Pentecost also began to be associated with uh, sort of a, a memorial and a thanksgiving for the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. So things sort of developed over time and what they would do during Pentecost. So this is when it's happening, right? This, this event, it's happening at Pentecost. By the way, Pentecost today, when you normally hear it, we think Pentecostal, or if you're, a, if you're into higher church or you follow the church calendar, then you've heard of Pentecost, right? Again, it means 50th. Now, as in the Christian calendar, Pentecost happens 50 days um, after Easter. But this, this is when God finally delivers on his promise. And the spirit is given Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And then tongues, right? Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So the Holy Spirit is given to all of the believers and the way that this is manifesting itself in this particular instance is with the sound of wind and the sight of fire. Wind and fire, like these are two of the most basic elements for all good heavy metal songs. So like I'm, I'm dialed in, I'm like, yes, wind and fire. Like I'm like, I'm super pumped. Like this sounds dramatic, it sounds powerful. And it was, right? It's not that there was actual wind circling through the room, but there was the sound of wind. So imagine they're waiting. 
they're not going to be surprised that the Spirit comes, but the way in which the Spirit comes and the immediacy of it is a shock. It's a howling wind. Maybe it sounds like a tornado. I don't know, but I would imagine that there's some level of fear or trepidation as the sound is filling, filling the house, maybe vibrating the walls. The sound of wind, which is interesting because, you know, the, the word in, in, in the Old Testament, uh, ruach, and, and in the New Testament, pneuma, the, the, these words that represent spirit also are translated as wind. It can mean wind, it can mean breath, it can mean spirit. And so this wind comes in, or at least the sound of it comes in, fills the house, and everyone is surprised. Now, at the same time, it's not just the sound of wind, there's this sight of fire. It looks like these flames of fire are appearing on all of the heads of all of the Christians, over 100 people that are gathered in this upper room. Now, this is... This is interesting. It's a little confusing because it says tongues of fire and then you think, oh, gift of tongues and they're about to speak in tongues, but it's, it's not the same thing. This isn't, their tongues aren't on fire. It's not coming out of their mouth. These are, it looks like flames sitting on top of their heads. Now, fire throughout the Old Testament represented different things, right? It, but it's, it's pretty easy to see. It oftentimes represented judgment. Fire would fall from heaven, but it also represents grace, Fire oftentimes represents the presence of God. Think Moses and the burning bush, right? God speaks to Moses through this burning bush that will not be consumed. Fire represents the very presence of God. Or as Israel is walking through the wilderness, what are they led by? They're led by a pillar of fire. God was near them. He was guiding them, leading them, protecting them. Fire here associated with the Holy Spirit, it is the presence of God, right? It's a, it's, it's a picture. I don't know how quickly they tuned into this, but at some point they had to figure it out. The wind, the fire, it's the nearness of God. It's, it's God in our midst. They received the Spirit, this expected surprise. And maybe the fire, right, maybe the fire makes you think of what John the Baptist said about Jesus in, uh, in Matthew 3, 11. When he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What's particularly interesting here is that these flames of fire are sitting atop every Christian there. Not just leadership, not just men, not just elderly people or more mature people, young and old men and women, leaders, everybody, everybody is going to receive the Holy Spirit. This is for all of God's people. It's not for a select few. God is liberal in the giving of this gift to his people. Everyone receives it. The Holy Spirit is given to all believers. Now, listen, this is a very significant event. It's a very significant event. And for some of us, because of our suspicions, we just don't like to give it a whole lot of time. And if you were to ask a lot of Christians, like, hey, name the, 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 the top five most significant things that happen in the Bible, a lot of them would leave this off, the giving of the Spirit. But this is up there with the act of creation. This is up there with the incarnation. The crucifixion, and not just the physical death of Christ, but the great exchange that's happening there. The resurrection, the ascension, the return of Jesus. We'll skip right over 
the giving of the Holy Spirit to the church. But this is incredibly significant that God gives himself in an experiential way to his people that they would be indwelt by him. God will no longer dwell in temples. You don't have to go anywhere in particular for worship. He is with his people always collectively as churches, but also individually as Christ followers. And we see this, that this is when the church receives the Holy Spirit, but they're also filled. It says in verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we've got two things that, that we need to talk about. There's indwelling and then there's filling. And these are things that we're going to pick up on throughout our series in the book of Acts. Right, we can't cover it all today and there's no need. There's a reason the series is called The Spirit and the Church. Because the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is, is a heavy emphasis and theme that runs throughout this book. Now the indwelling of the Spirit is simply that Upon your regeneration or new birth, when you finally have faith in Jesus and you repent of your sins, from the very moment that happens, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, takes up residency in you. So that when God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, it's not a, a, a promise of a principle that uh, is, is merely abstract. It is a promise that he is with you, for you, and actually residing in you, and he will not depart from you. God is with his church, his family, his children forever. He will not depart. So indwelling is permanent, but filling, as we're going to see as we go throughout this book, filling is different. Filling is not permanent. It's periodic, right? It's sort of like your communion with, with God, right? You are always justified, always acceptable. But your experiential communion with God ebbs and flows. Uh, sometimes you're believing really strongly and you're worshiping very authentically, but other times you're cold and you're wayward or you're backslidden. So your communion with God is up and down while your standing before God is steady. You are always indwelt but filling is periodic. And when filling happens throughout the Bible, when you see this filling of the Holy Spirit, it is a divine work of God through the Holy Spirit in an individual or a church that empowers them for the particular task that God has called them to. It's an empowering work. It's most of the time associated with words, with preaching, teaching, witnessing, testifying, right? whether that's in a, a formal sort of a, a sermon context or whether it's how we will answer charges against us when we're being persecuted. But this filling is an empowerment for witnessing. It's typically connected to uh, the words that we are used. And you can think of it like this, to be filled with the Spirit um, is to be moved by the Spirit. It's to be influenced by the Spirit. It's to be controlled or compelled by the Spirit. Not against your will, not like you're a robot, but it's the Spirit is at work in you, inflaming your love, giving you greater courage and boldness or discipline. The spirit changes the heart. Now, this filling here takes a particular form, doesn't it? This filling 
of the Spirit moves them to testify, to preach. So again, it's associated with words, but there is a miraculous, I mean, a truly miraculous aspect to it that's happening here, and that is they begin to speak in tongues. Now, before we get to that, and we're going to get there in just a second, let me just clarify that most of the time, the filling of the Spirit is not associated with such dramatic and amazing, miraculous occurrences. That's not the norm, right? It, throughout Scripture, it's not the norm. In fact, I'll, I'll give you just one example. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 18, it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You want to know what it looks like when people are filled with the Spirit? Right? That we're all indwelled, but you know when you're filled? When there's this great work happening in you, when there's, there's this empowerment happening most of the time? It looks like worship. It looks like love and submission. It looks like the old word is piety, godliness, sincerity. Don't be controlled or dominated by alcohol, he says. Be controlled and influenced by the spirit. Be filled. It looks like this. Words, affection, commitment, that's more typical. But here, we have something unique. It's a feeling that leads to this utterance of languages, real languages that people didn't know how to speak, but here they are speaking them, and these are not incoherent words strung together, but they are like messages. It's like little sermons almost. And this is happening because when God gives the Holy Spirit, he is giving himself to the church in a dramatic way. And God is there. He is active. He is accomplishing something. This gift, this gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling and the filling, that ensures our continued faith and work and witness. Now, the Holy Spirit given to all people, but the Holy Spirit is working in all people. So it's not just the Holy Spirit resides there. The Holy Spirit does things, right? God is active. God doesn't just chill. God is doing millions and billions of things at any given time, most of which we have no clue about. And he is active in our lives. One of the things he does is filling. And so here, there is this filling and people begin to speak in tongues. We see this in the second half of verse 4 all the way down. And this is exciting because it's completely unexpected, even by those who are observing. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, what does this mean, speaking in tongues? We're going to find as we go throughout the book of Acts that, the, that the, the doctrine of tongues or the gift of tongues is more complicated than most people on both sides of the debate usually admit. You got people that are pro-tongue talking and they're like, man, it's good. Let's, let's, let's get it going. Everybody should be about it. Some people would even say, everybody should do it. I had some people trying to get me to speak in tongues. 
I prayed for it, never came. Then they told me I should just try and fake it for a while and then maybe God would catch up. I was like, I'm not doing that. I don't think God's into faking stuff, so I'll pray. It didn't happen, fine. But then you have people on the other hand who are suspicious. They're suspicious of all the tongue talking and they're like, no, uh, I've, I've been to those services before. They're too long, they're too loud and nobody's making any sense. I don't want any part of it. It's more complicated than what most people want to admit. So we're not going to let our suspicions sabotage our faith. We're going to let scripture establish what it is that we believe about these, these things. Now, if, if you're new here uh, and you don't know much about us, we're not a charismatic church. We are a Baptist church. We are in the, uh, the particular Baptist or Reformed Baptist tradition. Uh, we don't practice speaking in tongues here, so we will get into all of that. But we should not be suspicious of what the Spirit does. Now, these were tongues that were being spoken. These, these tongues were actually languages. They were known languages. Well, they were unknown known languages, right? Because these were real languages that people would speak in their countries, in their cultures, in their cities, right? So we have different languages that were known in the world. And there are people that are speaking these languages who do not know these languages themselves, Something is going on. This wasn't a babble confusion of languages kind of a situation. This was God bringing clarity to what he is doing through Jesus and his people by moving people to speak the same message in a hundred different languages at the same time. So people were listening. People were hearing and they were shocked, right? We read this, they were shocked. They couldn't believe, like, how are these people? I know where these people are from. I know these guys. They, I know these ladies. They, they don't speak my language, but here they are speaking my language. Very clearly testifying about what God has done, his mighty works. I'm not suspicious about that. That sounds awesome. I'm a, I'll sign up for that. Let me see this, man, because this sounds brilliant. Now, why ultimately do this? Why this show of power, this, this, this show of Holy Spirit power? Why this divine utterance? What's the point of it? Well, remember, they're filled with the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, most of the time what happens is you begin to speak. You articulate the truth. You preach the gospel. This is something that that happens and that's what they are doing right they're functioning sort of like informal prophets and also remember what we read in acts 1 8 the holy spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses where everywhere to the uttermost parts of the earth you're not going to have a little regional uh movement here that's kind of exciting for a while and then dies out it's not for one culture it's not for one people it's not for one language it's for the world Right, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. All nations. That means we've got to speak. That's why we translate the Bible into every conceivable language. Right, if this, we, have, we find people groups that have a language but no written language, right? They don't write anything down. It's only oral. We'll send scholars in there to study, to develop a written language so that we can then translate the Bible into that language so that they have God's word. Why is this happening? It's because Christianity, our faith, is not the religion of one group. It's not a white man's religion. It's not a religion or a sect of 
Judaism. Right? It's, it, it's, it's more than what any one manifestation of it seems to be. We find it in every culture, every context, articulating the same faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We confess these truths. These truths unite us. This is why the church is so different from other religions. Because when you go to a church here in Geneva, Illinois, and you sing worship songs and you hear the word preached, and then you go to a church in, say, South Africa, and then you hop up to Northern Africa and you find one of the countries up there, completely different context. Then you go all the way over somewhere in Europe. You'll, maybe you'll, you'll, hit, uh, you'll hit Germany and then you'll go to Tokyo and you'll find another church. And in all of these different places, while the same faith is being articulated, the same gospel is being preached, these are our brothers and sisters. It doesn't sound the same. The songs are different because the gospel well, it doesn't change. It plants itself in the soil of different cultures and communities that gives birth to churches that look different from one another while holding to the same fundamental truths. So this speaking in tongues is what's, it's, it's highlighting this. This is for the world. For God so loved the world, not one group. Christ when he died, purchased a people with his blood from every tribe and tongue and nation. This faith is for everyone. The Holy Spirit is at work in people, all of God's people, but in different ways. So here we have the church. They're, uh, they're, they're speaking in tongue. Everybody's received the Spirit. They're all filled, and they're now they're speaking in these different languages that they didn't formally know, and people are listening, and they're tripping out. Now, this raises questions for those of you that are familiar with the issue and you know about the debates and maybe you have really strong opinions on it. You go, okay, so what about when Paul talks about tongues in Corinthians? Or the Church of Corinth, they were dealing with, dealing with tongues and that seems to be a different kind of tongue talking, right? And when I say tongue talking, I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just saying, like, speaking in tongues, I can only say that phrase, speaking in tongues so many times it gets boring in my head, ADD. Anyways, so the, 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 the tongue talking in Corinth seems to be somewhat different. It's talked about in a, in a way that seems uh, out of step with what we're seeing here. So is it the same exact kind of speaking in tongues or is it different? We know that there's correction and rebuke in there. Are there positive instructions as well? We will give to all of that as we continue through the book of Acts. For now, what I want us to see is these, these two things, right? That the Holy Spirit is given to all believers and that the Holy Spirit works in all believers. And here, the first thing that he's doing is he's getting them to proclaim the, the powerful, mighty works of God through Jesus Christ in every language possible at that very moment. Now, there are many other spiritual gifts than just this. And I hope that you know this, right? I hope that you know this, that there, you look at uh, Romans 12 or, or, or 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, those are two good places to go to begin to see how, what Paul has to say about spiritual gifts. And let me say this about spiritual gifts. Uh, you, you'll, you'll go to a place and you'll find a list. Or you go to 1 Corinthians 12 and there's a list. And then you'll, you'll go to Romans 12. You'll look at, uh, at Ephesians, 1 Peter. And sometimes there are the same words in the list and other times there are you know one one word might be exclusive to one list when you're looking at a list this these are not all of the conceivable spiritual gifts that are out there but these are the ones that are articulated and we should pay attention to them 
But I want us to read at least one list here. We'll go to Romans chapter 12. Because not only does the Holy Spirit indwell all believers and occasionally or periodically fill all believers, but the Holy Spirit also always gifts all believers. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If it's prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Paul says you should know what your spiritual gift is, right? And you should be using it for the good of the body because God did not leave you with a lump of coal, right? God did not give you a zero when it comes to your giftedness. You are gifted, spiritually gifted, uniquely gifted for your particular context in life, that you might be an encouragement to the people around you in service to the church and in holding out hope for the world. Every Christian has spiritual gifts or at least a spiritual gift that we should be using. Again, We'll revisit this, but it's important for us to understand that when the Holy Spirit takes up residency in us, all believers receive him, we should then anticipate that the Holy Spirit is going to work through us. And one of the ways you can see the Holy Spirit working through you is to know what your spiritual gift is because that's where he's going to be leading you, prompting you, nudging you, kicking you, sometimes to get you moving. We're all gifted in different ways. Now, some of these spiritual gifts are clearly associated with the apostles, right? Gifts like prophecy or healing, uh, tongues. And then other gifts were more commonly shared among the church. And so we're gonna walk through this as we go deeper into the book of Acts. I just want you to keep in mind, the whole discussion is a bit more complicated than either side of the debate generally admits. So all of this is going on. The Holy Spirit's given. The people are filled. The Holy Spirit goes to work. There's all this proclamation. And how does the world react? Well, it says in verse 12, they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking, saying they're drunk. <laughs> right? That's what it says. They're filled with wine. They're drunk. And we're going to get to how Peter answers that question and what else Peter has to say. We'll talk more about this next week. But get this, when you are not suspicious of the Holy Spirit because of whatever baggage you know, you're dealing with or carrying, when you aren't being suspicious of the Spirit and you are ready to what? Live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, people will notice. By the way, if you think that sounds weird, because like I, this is what suspicion does to us. If somebody says, like, yeah, you got to keep in step with the Spirit, a lot of us will be like, mm, it's kind of cheesy. Really? Because that's just Galatians 5.25. It literally says that. It literally says keep in step with the Spirit. I know, hey, listen, it sounds like something a charismatic person would say. You know why? Because they spend a lot of time reading about the Holy Spirit. 
And just because we have differences doesn't mean that they're totally wrong. It certainly doesn't mean that we can't learn from them. And just because we have differences, it doesn't mean that they should look at us as anything less than brothers and sisters, and we shouldn't look at them as anything less than brothers and sisters. If you are living by the Spirit and keeping in step with the Spirit, Galatians 5.25, the world will notice. Now, it's not that the whole world is going to notice you, but the people around you in the world will notice, and they're going to have a reaction. If the Spirit is manifesting himself in your life, then they're going to be, maybe, maybe awed. Not because you are such a powerful thing, but because God is doing something in you that maybe, maybe would never have happened in their mind, for sure. Like, it never would have happened to you apart from this something special, something powerful. There is something new in you. We can see it, whether it's acts of mercy or love and and service, whether it's how you share the gospel or are willing to suffer. The world will notice. Sometimes they will marvel. Sometimes they will mock. What else are they gonna say? Like so many people were calling it out and saying, hey, listen, They're speaking these languages. I don't know how they're doing it, so they're marveling. But here's here's my thought on this. The only way this makes sense, that some are marveling and some are mocking, is that the people that are closer to the actual events, they're the ones marveling because they can hear exactly what's happening. They're hearing the gospel being preached in their language by people who don't know their language. Kind of hard to say that they're drunk if you know what's happening. You don't have to think it's God. You could just think it's really crazy and weird. You could think it's kind of an an alien invasion taking over people's bodies. You could come up with your own crazy conspiracy theories, but you're not going to go there drunk because drunkenness doesn't lead to that. But people out there on the periphery, people farther away, people who aren't up close and seen and listening to what's actually happened, all they hear is a bunch of gibberish, and now that might sound like drunkenness. And I find this to be true. When we are in people's lives bearing witness loving them, serving them, when, when we are making connections with people in the world as the, the witnesses that we're supposed to be, the ones that are close to us may not believe, but maybe they will marvel at how good God is and in what God does. I know I was, do, I was marveling when I met Christians. Once I got up close, I'd never met Christians, never been to church. Once I actually got to meet Christians, I began to marvel. It's easy to mock from a distance, not so easy when you're seeing the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. So let me just say this. Um, The gift of the Holy Spirit is God giving himself to the church, which means we should treasure it, not neglect it. We should invest in it. We should leverage it. We should take every advantage we can from it. We should be willing to share it. We should be excited about it, not embarrassed about it. It's God giving himself to us. There is nothing more amazing. So, to the church, uh, here's what I generally say to us. Right? Because I'm going to wind up disagreeing with many of my charismatic brothers and sisters in certain parts. Um, but I, that's not my job to address them. My job is to address us. Us specifically, and then broader us would be Baptists. Our pneumatology is weak. Our pneumatology is weak. Now, listen, uh, if you're the defensive type, I don't necessarily mean your specific. You could have perfect pneumatology. You can be out there and you've got it all nailed. You've read all the right books. You've got it. Great. Okay, awesome. Probably not, though, but it's possible. 
I'm not necessarily talking about your specific doctrine, but even if you've got the doctrine on lock, I guarantee you, I promise you, I will say it to your face, your pneumatology is still weak, at least in your expression of it, your experience of it, because this is true for all of us. We tend to be weak in the experience, in, in, the, in the delight in, in the manifestation of these doctrines. Our pneumatology is generally weak. We need to repent over our neglect of this doctrine. Why is it that we have, why do we have our kids, especially in the 90s, I, I saw this a lot, deep, long-form discipleship for our kids so that they can debate creationism versus evolution. Hours, videos, countless resources and money so that our kids can debate evolution versus creation. I'm not saying it's unworthy. But not one study on the Holy Spirit, no investment in these doctrines. Yeah, we need to repent of our neglect of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We need to learn to appreciate the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We need to learn to appreciate the Holy Spirit for we're talking about God with us. And yes, we need to live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. And let me just say this to you if you are not a believer. Um, I just want to read one verse, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. It's under my notes here. I've got to peel this off. Hang on. Here we go. Ready? Here's what Peter says shortly after this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is significant because on the one hand, it says exactly what I would expect. Repent, believe in Jesus, and you will have forgiveness. That is the fundamental message that is shared throughout Acts with unbelievers. You are guilty of your sin. You're awaiting condemnation. But if you believe in Jesus, God will forgive you and accept you forever. Brilliant. And you get the spirit. Now, why would he say that? Because they just saw a demonstration of the spirit. They just saw one aspect of the spirit's work in the life of the church. And they're going to see more. And so the, the encouragement is, listen, if you will repent of your sins and believe in Christ, yes, you will be forgiven of your sins and you will receive the Spirit. God himself will take up residency in you. This doesn't make you God. It makes you God's child. And God in you means God with you. And because of Jesus Christ, it means in all things God for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would correct us of our waywardness, that you would encourage us in our faithfulness. Lord, wherever we have good doctrine, will you please let us see that so that we can rejoice in it, Pre prevent us from being arrogant wherever we might excel, but keep us humble and hungry to continue to learn because even if we can parse out an aspect of theology perfectly, we will never be perfect in our personal acceptance of it or experience of it. So God, we need your grace. We need your spirit. We're grateful that you have given us each the Holy Spirit, but now we're asking that you would fill us each for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.